Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am in dialogue with Dr. Kenneth Stowe. We will be discussing his new book, Anna and Tranquilo, Catholic Anxiety and Jewish Protest in the Age of Revolutions, published in New Haven by Yale University Press 2016. It's an honor to be with you in dialogue today, Kenneth. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Ari. Yes. To begin, kindly tell us about yourself. Where did you go grow up? What inspired your interest in this topic? Can you tell us any biographical information about yourself that would help contextualize the scholarly work you've been doing? Well, I'm an American by birth and an Israeli by identity, although I don't think that I really qualify as uh, fully one or the other at this point in my life. I grew up in the States. I went to Columbia. I went to JTS for undergraduate, uh, got a PhD from Columbia. That's a few years back before just about everybody was born, 1971. Uh, and um, I taught in the States for a few years and had a job opportunity in Israel. I had been in Israel for a postdoc and uh, uh, seemed like a great opportunity. And indeed, it was at the University of Haifa. And I remained there for over 30 years, uh, rising to be a full professor. Uh, and um, it was very congenial. I still have very good relations with the university and with everybody associated with it. Uh, at the same time, yeah, one goes on sabbaticals from Israeli universities and uh, one goes to different institutions. I've been at Yale a couple of times, University of Michigan, even the Pontifical Gregorian in, uh, University in Rome, uh, the University of Toronto, uh, and uh, ultimately uh, Smith College, uh, where I met my wife, who is an Argentinian. Uh, and uh, therefore, we started to come to Argentina where, from where I'm speaking right now. Uh, but my work does not have to do with Argentine Jews or Argentine history. It rather has to do with uh, Italian Jews. Uh, I had very close relations with Italians over the years. And uh, the first time I got to Rome was in the spring, April of 1972, not 62, 72. I had written a dissertation which had involved the Jews in canon law. How I got into that, I don't quite know. Um, but I was just fascinated by medieval law, I think. I consider myself a medievalist, although the book we're talking about is the 18th century. But as you will soon see, if you're not a medievalist, you can't understand what they were doing in the 18th century, not in the uh, Roman church anyway. Uh, and uh, and uh, then after I had been involved there and I went on sabbaticals there, 
uh, I started to work in an archive, which is unique. It has Jewish notarial documents. What do I mean by notarial documents? Most of us today think of a, a notary uh, as uh, somebody you just go to and you, you have to sign a notarize a document. You know, the notary just says it's you who's signing the document in front of them. Uh, not so in Europe, even today, not so in Europe. Um, a notary is, is almost a lawyer. Uh, they take down testimony and things like that. And the uh, the lawyers that uh, that I was reading were all rabbis, uh, and they were unique. They didn't exist before the 16th century in Rome from about 1536 through 1640. I can give you precise dates because the papal uh, authorities closed them down in 1640. And the first texts I have from 1536, uh, they were writing in Hebrew, except the Hebrew is really half Italian. Uh, and uh, uh, I even once figured it out where where the Italian, how they were thinking in Italian. But in any case, I pulled out a lot of material from there, maybe 6,000 documents in a database. And I wrote a book called Theater of Acculturation, which had to do with uh, Jewish, uh, Jewish life in Rome, Jewish life in the ghetto. Uh, we all know the term ghetto, but the uh, the first ghetto actually was in Venice from 1516, uh, and that was followed by the one in Rome in 1555. Uh, it, it wasn't actually called the ghetto. It was called the, the claustrum, the closed area of the Jews, until sometime in the 1580s, uh, some Jews said, well, we were closed in Nostro Get, our get, and you can hear the play on the word for a Jewish bill of divorce, a get, uh, given to the woman, the Jews were the woman who were cast out. And they lived in that ghetto for 300 years. Now, there are a lot of things they did in that ghetto which are fascinating. For instance, I just finished a study, which uh, is soon to find a publisher, on the provision of kosher meat in Rome. Well, how can you write a book on provision of kosher meat? Is it that interesting? Well, it is because the essence isn't so much the meat itself. It's the fact that parts of the animal have to be sold to Christians. And how do you do that? Because it's illegal. Well, it was, it was by canon law. Well, it was allowed, and Jews and Christian butchers worked together. And uh, they got to the point where the chief butcher of the uh, community was, um, uh, was, uh, was a Christian, of all things. Uh, very complex. Well, before we get to that, before that book, I wrote this book, the one we're talking about now. I had been fascinated. There was a, doc, a document which was published by the late Yosef Baruch Sermoneta. Sermoneta, for those in the know, will say, oh, yeah, that's a Roman Jewish name. Roman Jews have names that are as distinctive as Cohen and Levy, I assure you. Uh, if you. If you know them, you, you immediately hear de Verily, de Tivoli, uh, Forti, um, uh, one uh, Desaini in particular, the chief rabbi in Rome right now, Ricardo Desaini. Uh, and uh, these, uh, their sermonetta is one of them, sermonetta antiquely. Uh, uh, and uh, sermonetta was a scholar at the Hebrew University of uh, what he called Judeo Italian. It's uh, from the 13th century. Uh, and then of Jude Judeo Romanesco, which is uh, the, uh, um, which is 
what Jews in Rome were actually speaking in the ghetto period. Uh, it's, it's Italian. Uh, the Jews in Rome are different from everybody else, every other Jew in town, so to speak, because whereas uh, Jews who got to, to Russia, got to Germany, they were all immigrants. You can't say that about Roman Jews. Roman Jews were not immigrants because they've been there since before uh, before the Christian era. They're, they're, they were allies of uh, Julius Caesar. And so they're as Italian as everybody else. And some of the foods uh, from Italian Jews uh, are now widely, widely served in Italian restaurants all over. Well, one of the things that Jews suffered in the ghetto was people being taken, kidnapped into an institution called the Kazet Katekumeni, the Roman House of Converts. This is a rather frightening place. Uh, you can still see it, actually. Well, not, it's not very easy to get inside. I've had the pleasure, the dubious pleasure of being inside. Uh, it's next to a church. Um, right across the church where everybody knows the statue of Moses of uh, Michelangelo. Uh, and um, uh, this this church uh, is uh, where they, they, the people were there. They were held in this in this in, in, they, they were held there uh, often against their will. And in one case, uh, a girl named Ana del Monte, um, uh, the del Monte, which may sound strange as a Jewish name, it's actually Hahar. Uh, from um, uh, from from Montpellier in France, where they had probably emigrated from at the end of the 16th century. Uh, anyway, she was taken into the Roman House of Converts, uh, and uh, she was held there for 12 days. Why 12 days? Well, there were all some people were held as long as 40 days, but Anna was held there for 12 days. Uh, because um, uh, she uh, she had been denounced by someone who pretended he was her husband, who had converted himself. Uh, she was denounced as having expressed a will to convert, which she had never done. Uh, and um, uh, and and uh, she she uh, she had she was taken in there. Uh, and and uh, and and held and held against her will, and she when she but but she persevered. Somehow or other, she didn't convert. Now, how many people were there who didn't convert? Maybe maybe twenty five percent got out. People who were held for forty days. Who was held for forty days? Well, if you were married and your husband converted, they and he and he dedicated you to the church, he oblated you to use the, the technical word, or simply offered you, which is the word they used, you could be held for 40 days. Now, can you imagine being held for 40 days without being having access to anybody and anything other than the people who come to preach to you? Well, Anna left a diary, so to speak. What I think is that, and this was in the year 1749, this occurred. She got out, somehow survived, and she wrote down some notes. Maybe she had even wrote a rudimentary diary, as, as it's called. She the, the diary then sat there. It may have even been lost. And then somehow or other, her older, her younger brother, much younger brother, 
uh, got a hold of it, and he reworked it. I have to be very careful with this text because some people think they say, oh, well, this is a, a, a fiction. No, it's not a fiction. Some people say, well, we can uh, use it uh, to do what's called uh, self-imaging or self-imagining or self-presentation. And it's not that either, because what we have is her with a huge overlap of her brother. So it's as much him, tranquilo, which is menucha in Hebrew. Uh, I'm not quite sure. Maybe he may have been menachem. Uh, he, uh, he, uh, he reworked it. And she also reworked it with somebody called uh, um, Moises Mieli, Mieli being also an Italian Jewish name. Uh, and uh, she, they reworked it and we have it. How do we have it? It wasn't published. Believe me, it wasn't published. It never would have survived published. It exists, as far as we know, in a single copy. And I think it was passed around by hand among a, an elite group of people, people who belong to a, a kind of a, a school uh, called the Academy, founded by a rabbi named Tranquilo, also Tranquilo Corcos, Corcos being a, uh, uh, also in Rome, but being a Sfardi name, as you may know. Um, and uh, he was uh, an incredibly intelligent, incredibly edited and er uh, educated and erudite person. Uh, and he found an academy. And I suspect this was the group that saw this text, which was put together in 1793. Let's understand the date 1793. It's very important because you say, well, 1793, what happened in 1793? Uh, oh, there was the French Revolution in 1791, wasn't there? And believe me, they were aware of it and aware of what happened. And there was the American Revolution somewhat before and the American Constitution just a few years before. So that uh, the person who, who was circulating this thing, restructuring it, knew very well the world he was lived in. And this is not my guess or my, my estimation. This is rather what, uh, what can be gathered for sure because Tranquilo, Cor Tranquilo Del Monte, Brano's brother, was one of the heads of the Roman Jewish community. And the Jewish community had in its archives all kinds of texts from all kinds of other communities in Italy and outside Italy, showing how Jews were getting greater rights at this time. So as contrasted to the greater rights being achieved by Gru Jews elsewhere in Italy and elsewhere in Western Europe, remember it is Western Europe, not Eastern Europe, that's a different world. Uh, and, and, and contra in contrast to, to, to that, um, uh, the, 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 this diary shows the story of a woman simply being tortured each day, not, 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 not necessarily physically tortured, but she's being held uh, in, uh, in, in this cell. She's being visited every day by priests, by, by, by monks, by, by, by nuns, by the mother superior, many of whom are themselves converts. At one point, there's a terrible scene. The, the, the violence, the pressure, the attacks on her get stronger and stronger and worse and worse as the time goes along. And, uh, 
Uh, and at, at one point, she's got 10 priests dancing around her, one of them waving a crown over of thorns over her head and pouring water all over her body. Uh, she's being violated, uh, not physically, but but uh, not really physically, but certainly psychologically. Uh, and yet she survives it. And she keeps coming back by saying, I don't want them rubare l'anima. Now, what does rubare l'anima mean? Well, literally, it means steal my soul. Somebody said it meant steal my, uh, my, um, uh, my, my, my free will. But you can't steal anybody's free will, can you? Free will is an inherent quality of, of, of one's mind, of one's essence. What one can steal will do with a free will, however, is prohibit its free expression, which we see in many parts of the world today. Uh, and uh, what she, but, but, but what she really means is don't steal my identity. I am a Jew. I want to be with my family. I want to engage in my practices. I want to engage in my rituals. This is my essence. The ghetto is my home for as good as it bad as it can be. In her case, it was not so bad because she was from, from one of the better to do families of the ghetto. And somebody actually managed to reconstruct what may have been her home, may have been about 65 meters, but that would have been a lot in the ghetto. Uh, and uh, she somehow manages, as I say, uh, to to withstand. One of the things she does, by the way, of interest, they say, what do you want to eat? As if they really asked her. And, and she says, well, give me two eggs a day. One she would eat and one she would keep to count the days. But wait a minute, there's something symbolic about that egg, isn't there? Because what is the one food which, if it's untouched, can never be made, can never be contaminated, will always be kosher? An egg. It's impervious. And so she's saying, I kept kosher in the house of converts too. Uh, statement, everything in this thing is a statement. It's not a fiction, as I say, it's based on the reality of a real experience of a, a woman uh, who was about 17 years old when she was taken into the ghetto, uh, who into the house of converts. She died apparently sometime between 1779. And I had thought that uh, she uh, probably didn't marry. Uh, this was the lot of many women who were taken into the house of converts. We, we, we know this. We know this from the writings of Christians who defended Jews taking lawyers who defended Jews taken into the house of converts, that these women were unmarriageable. Why were they unmarriageable? Because there was always a fear that somehow or other, in order to get out, they had promised, they had promised that they would not, uh, that they would give their children, they would offer their children or something like that. Uh, they might be pulled back in again. So no one wanted to marry them. Well, my friend Michael Gasparoni has told me that he's found that Anna actually did get married, which is a rather unusual thing. And fortunately in the book, I said very likely, I never said she didn't. Uh, so I won't be proved wrong, but it, it's rather, rather amazing uh, that, uh, that she was able to marry and actually apparently have a child. Well, what I did in the book, therefore, was I took the diary. Sir Monette, I mentioned, had the diary. I think his family still has it there in Jerusalem, but nobody knows for sure. And Sir Monette is no longer with us. He was truly a great scholar and a great human being uh, and a great teacher. Uh, and he 
uh, he published it in its original Italian uh, with uh, with commentary, and I translated it. And fortunately, I had somebody who knows Italian very well, a native speaker, go over to catch a couple of small errors. I'm very proud of having achieved that level of Italian, of course. But uh, I translated it, and it's heavily annotated. And that's the first, um, oh, first 40, 50 pages of the book after introduction and so on and so forth. The book then goes on. And it goes on to, 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 to put the whole thing in context. What does this diary mean? The, the notes to the diary in the book, they handle the progression of the constant threats, the constant pressure, the expanding pressure, the expanding uh, uh, terror that Anna faces. That you can see there. But what, what are the things, what are the... Um, uh, pressures that go on. Well, I think I've gone, gone on long enough that people get an idea. I mean, I've done other work in other fields too. Um, uh, published an article on the Jewish family in the Rhineland in the Middle Ages, published other medieval books on, published a general history of Jews in the Middle Ages uh, called uh, Alienated Minority, which uh, has been well received. But uh, this is where I am. This is where I'm concentrating right now. Ari, maybe you want to uh, come back in now. Sure. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Well, I would like them to get out of our dialogue that the book is worth reading. Uh, and uh, in, in simple terms, I think, I think it is worth reading. Uh, some parts of it are not easy to follow. And that is because I'm tracing uh, the history of certain decisions made within the Catholic Church about who could make these uh, these offerings of people to the house of converts, uh, the, uh, uh, the the it was very very complicated, because and 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 through that one can see where the church really stood, and 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 it's important to see just how the church was working, uh, and I will get back to that in a second, but. Uh, the, even though, even though some parts are, you know, people will read them, people who are not uh, uh, specialists, whatever, uh, you don't have to really read every page. You just have to get the, the sense um, that uh, of, of a certain commitment. And what what is this commitment? There are two sides to the issue here. The book is really about Jewish emancipation. What is Jewish emancipation? Jews in the Middle Ages, as everybody kind of knows, anybody listening to this probably knows already, lived under very great restriction. Uh, they weren't living in ghettos, uh, not really anyway, from since Spain, from sometime in the 15th century, they start to close Jews in. Uh, but you have to realize that Jews had been expelled from England in 1290, France and during the course of the 14th century, two or three times. Uh, Germany, the population was weakened by attacks and small expulsions. And Jews started to live in Poland from around 1500. That's, that's, uh, that's when the Jewish community, the huge Jewish community of Eastern Europe, that many Jews in North America trace their ancestry to, that's when that community started to flourish. 
But other than that, by the by the 16th century, the, uh, the, the in Western Europe, you really have only Jews in uh, in Italy, uh, the Jews in Spain, the Jews in, uh, in in Iberia, the Jews in France. They're all clandestine. They're all or all hidden Jews. It's only and from the middle of the 16th century, the Jews in the, in the Netherlands begin to come out of the out of the woodwork. Usually Portuguese Jews and so on, and indeed the, the records there are in Portuguese. But uh, but the Jews are Jews are in Italy now. Ultimately, however, Jews start to come back to the West to England in the 1650s. I think I don't remember the exact date. That's under Oliver Cromwell. Uh, the uh, and in France they begin to come out, and then suddenly there are Jews in Alsace along the Rhine River, which become part of France. What are you going to do with these Jews? And you have Jews who go yes to uh, North America. Uh, I don't know about Canada before uh, time of the American Revolution. Probably very few. There are a couple of thousand in the United States. Now, the question is. How do these people become emancipated? Emancipated meaning become legally equal to everybody else. A Jew who lives in the United States today is not, if any, he's gets a speeding ticket, doesn't go to court and is, is tried as a Jew. He's tried as somebody who was speeding, and that was that. Uh, so that's what emancipation means, equality. And now, it's not something that happens overnight. You don't say, aha, emancipated, and everybody starts liking Jews and dealing with Jews as equals. Uh, we know that their attitudes toward Jews, uh, attitudes which we lump together under the term of anti-Semitism, um, and uh, these attitudes uh, persist, they even persist today and more and more today, as we all know. Uh, but the question is, where where are these Jews going to, you know, how are these Jews going to live in society? In Europe, it's more complex. Why is it more complex in Europe? Let's look first at the United States. And all this has all this is in the book, by the way. Uh, in the United States, we have people particularly like Jefferson, but more than anyone else, James Madison, who truly believe that society should be a civil society and next to it, a religious society, except that the two don't have anything intrinsically to do with each other. You want to be a Catholic, you want to be a Baptist, you want to be a Congregationalist, that's all fine. You can do that, and the state should not interfere, the state should have nothing to do with it. Everybody has to be equal under law. And George Washington was the one who put it best when he said, he wrote a letter to the Jews of Newport, Rhode Island, to a synagogue there and said, you comport yourselves, you obey the law, and you comport yourselves as good citizens. In other words, who's a good citizen? Somebody who obeys the law, not because you're a Christian. Now, Washington had to have known that in Europe, in the, in the Middle Ages and into early, the early modern period, who was a citizen was somebody who was baptized. And that's not just what I'm thinking. That's what was written by legal uh, uh, lawyers and, and, and legal thinkers and jurists. So you had to be regenerated through baptism in order to be a legal citizen. So that uh, it, 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 
in the United States, the thinkers, the people who ran the American Revolution, I know today that there's great discussion about them uh, and that they were slaveholders and so on and so forth. But that's one side of them. The other side of them is that they had this very, very advanced thinking about the nature of a society and, and that the underpinnings of a society should be purely civil. Uh, and therefore, what we notice is that Look at the Declaration of Independence. It has two very vague references to the deity. Nothing else, nothing else. The Constitution just says, you know, we the people. Uh, uh, the people, who's the people? The people who obey the laws, period. Jews are emancipated in the United States just by being there, essentially. In Europe, it didn't work that way. In France, they had to physically do it. They had to say, we will make Jews equal. We will end any any problems uh, that had to do with law. Does that mean that the, the minute that was said, everybody said, OK, we welcome Jews with open arms? No, of course not. These things take time. They took time. In some places, they were never resolved. We all know the Dreyfus affair. That wasn't a legal issue, but that was in the beginning of the 20th century. All these feelings of antipathy towards Jews and fears of Jews and so on and so forth. So it's there. But Jews become equal. How do they become equal? And this is the key to the whole thing in Europe. All of Europe, one, one way or another, either directly or indirectly through studying the schools, observed something called jus commune, common law, not, I, refer, I, re, I, I repeat, not to be confused with English common law, with what we usually think of as common law, the law of precedent, the law of practice. This common law, this jus commune, is Roman law, ancient Roman law, which had been distilled and reinterpreted through the Middle Ages into the early modern times. And it, it was still the law in vogue, in practice, in many places, or at least the law studied in the universities, because French law was somewhat different based on what was called custom, which means different kind of law, not just what people did. Uh, and this law uh, existed hand in hand with canon law of the church, the law of the church. The two melded with each other. But in fact, the use community itself was a Christian law because it descended from Roman law, which had become Christian in the sixth century. It's not by accident that the Roman law of the Justinian Code from the year 527 has chapters on heretics, on bishops, on the Holy Church, and so on and so forth. It was integral to the state. Well, how do you do if your law codes do that? How do you emancipate anybody? Simple. You get rid of the law code. Is that possible? Or possible or not possible? That's precisely what Napoleon did in 1804 when he issued his Code Civil. Now, when he did that, it was a revolution. People who really studied this material have written overnight, European law changed, literally overnight, because in Napoleon's Code Civil, it is a civil code. You all probably know that the French, how emphatic they are about society being a lay society. Their uh, girls can't wear a hijab in, in, in school and things like that. That's all a descendant of the of, of the uh, Roman law, of the, of the Code Civil of Napoleon of 1804. This is opposite 
to what was going on in the papal state. And that's the essence of the of the issue and the problem. In the papal state, everything worked to prefer canon law, to prefer religious law. Everything worked on the basis of what was called favor of the faith, or in Latin, favor fide. Favor fide, somebody thought was invented in the 18th century. It was invented in the 10th century, and it was a major, major basis of law. Uh, and, and therefore, uh, the Jews in, in Rome were living under this restrictive canon law code, along with a civil law code. Except for one thing, the civil law, the Jus Comuni, said that Jews were citizens. Wait a minute, there's a contradiction here, isn't there? I can be a citizen on the one hand and be restricted by religion on the other. Very easy, if, if you live in a confessional society. A confessional society is one with an official religion. A confessional society is one where the official religion sets the tone on things. For instance, uh, all marriage has to be according to religious uh, authority. That's a problem, as many of you may know. In Israel today, you can't get married civilly in Israel. This is a, a major, major issue. Uh, but on the other hand, they come to a country where I am now, Argentina. Well, there is an official religion, although it doesn't matter too much except for some holidays. But you can't go to a church and get married or a synagogue and get married without having first had an entirely distinct and separate civil ceremony. This was one of Napoleon's introductions, because it should be very obvious that the, the, the powers of a society which, which control marriage, who can marry, who can't marry, what are the conditions of marriage, what are the conditions of divorce, can there be divorce? The party that controls all that controls an awful lot of society, including an awful lot of money. Can you, can you uh, tax inheritances and so forth? So what this book is about, going back directly to it, is how can it be? And remember I said 1793 for the diary. How can it be that Ana del Monte is yanked into the house of converts and that people are still being yanked into the house of converts and, and, and they would send out orders to the heads of the Jewish communities, deliver so-and-so to the house of converts, and they had to do it. They had no choice. Imagine, imagine having to do a thing like this, to be, you know, be, be party to being a traitor to yourself effectively. They had, they had to do it. This is still going on as late as the French Revolution and, the, and even afterwards. Um, uh, many people know the famous case of Edgaro Mortara, which is a little different, but that's in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, so that the Jews are in Rome. They're sitting there and they're saying, I see what's going on in the United States. Maybe even they knew that. They certainly saw what was going on in France. They knew what was going on in other parts of the Italian uh, peninsula where the ghettos uh, were being taken down and so on and so forth. And they're, they're there and people are being dragged to the House of Converts. And so what I do with the book after I present the diary and explain everything that happens, and I said, well, what's the background to it? That's what all the rest of the book is about. The background, how could it have been that way? And it has to do with the functions of a society where religion is prime, where religion is not only prime, but legally prime, and where a lot of people are very unhappy about it. And that's a lot of the things in the book, too. Well, I think I should stop here for a second as well. Can you tell us about the life and biography of Anna Del Monte? 
Where and when was she born? In what ways was her life typical or atypical of Jewish females of her period? Can you tell us about her personality and her psychology? Well, uh, that's that's a very hard question, actually. I can tell you roughly when she was born, which would have been something like 1732 or 1733. I don't remember the exact date. I, I, I do know it. Uh, but it would have been about 1733. Um, no, actually, I wouldn't know the exact date because we know of her. We know of her from a census from 1733. It's a census of Roman Jewry that was made, uh, and uh, her name appears there. That's the only thing that we. That's the only concrete fact we know about her, and the the fact that uh, introduction to the diary seems to suggest that she was dead before 1779. So she would have died at age 47. That is all that I can tell you concretely about her, except that she clearly was in the Roman House of Converts. She clearly passed time there. Uh, she, uh, she did get out. All of this would have to have been true. Why do I say I know she didn't convert? Why am I sure? Because the Roman House of Converts actually kept lists uh, of the uh, uh, of of the, all the people who converted, uh, and uh, they, uh, uh, they the the name of Anna del Monte is not there. On the other hand, the name of the person who tried to say that she was his wife as well as his sister; those names are there. So we can be pretty sure that the story occurred. The kernel of the story occurred. How much of the diary? Is uh, is addition? How much is is filling out what happened there on the basis of her notes? There's no way of saying that. It's what Tranquilla wanted us to know. It's how he wished us to picture the events in the diary. Apparently, now, thanks to my friend Michael Gasparoni uh, uh, of Paris, uh, a citizen of San Marino, by the way, and you don't meet many of them. Uh, oh. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's sixty-five thousand. Anyway, he he has found in, in, in marriage. He studied marriage records in Rome, the Roman Jews, uh, and he said she got married and she had a child. Uh, and apparently he is writing something about her, and maybe he has found out something about her. Uh, I, in my work, uh, just, you know, didn't uh, didn't pursue it, I think, because I didn't think I could find anything. And I've been pretty much through. I, I used not only the, uh, the notarial material, which is in one Roman archive called the Archivio Storico Capitolino, uh, and then the Roman archive, city archive, the Archivio di Stato, but I also have spent ages and ages in the in the in the Asher, as it's called, the Archivo Storico della Comunità Ebraica Romana of the Roman Jewish community, uh, run by some very wonderful people. Uh, and um, no, I didn't find anything on her there. Uh, obviously, I don't know every document in the archive. It's it's a big archive. But uh, I've been through an awful lot there, and uh, her name didn't show up. So I can't, I can't tell anything. Chris, this makes it, this makes it interesting. You may ask, well, is her story unique? And the answer is no. 
It's not unique that we know there were others. Um, I, I have a list of at least 22 women who the communal leaders were ordered to deliver to the House of Converts. Uh, we know stories of other women who, who, who escaped from the House of Converts or were taken there. Um, and um, there, there, there's actually a very interesting story that comes from um, Eastern Europe which is clearly a fiction. And the events seem very, very much like Anna's. Whether the persons in Eastern Europe who wrote it had any notion of Anna or Anna's people had any notion of the Eastern European story, I really, really doubt it's too far away. But uh, there it is. So she's not unique. What, but at the same time, you say, well, what are like, well, you know, was she a typical Roman Jew? And here I think I, I, I would say, that she was typical and atypical at the same time. She was typical in the sense that she was a girl who grew up in a closed community. Now, the ghetto is not a jail. It's open in the morning and closed at night. Uh, people come in, people go out, people do business. Uh, Jews went out, especially selling things. Jews did, they specialized in, in, in repairing what used to be called invisible repairs. Uh, of uh, of cloth, uh, they uh, some of them were merchants and actually traveled around and traveled outside the ghetto, traveled to other cities. Uh, but essentially, they were living within this compound. Uh, they had officers. They they didn't really have any kind of court system anymore. Uh, they they couldn't even really litigate among themselves or arbitrate among themselves by the deep into the ghetto period, certainly by Anna's day. Um, they did have community. They did have butchery. They did have laws of butchering meat and so on and so forth uh, with very lively butchers of whom I have records. Uh, they uh, uh, doing what butchers often do, which, which besides meat, just, you know, getting into trouble with each other. Um, we, we know that women... Uh, were, were involved in work and things like that. There were even women butchers. Uh, Anna certainly was because Anna came from one of the families that had money. Now, there weren't that many people doing 18th century. Some Jews had become spice merchants and were doing well. Her family was one of the more well-to-do families. Uh, we can presume that she probably did learn how to read, uh, certainly say prayers, probably embroidered. Uh, we have, uh, there are in the, the Museum of the Roman Jewish Community, there are all kinds of Torah covers and uh, Bima covers, or prayer, the, the altar covers, which have inscriptions on them in, in beautifully lettered Hebrew. And that was done by women. Uh, these were called lavori feminili, women's labors, uh, which today one would not use, of course. But uh, they were doing these things. So she probably participated in all of that. But remember, she's 17 or 18 years old, probably on the verge of getting married, although we don't know exactly how, what, when. The, the diary ends in what has to be a fiction. She gets out. She goes home. Everybody is happy. There's celebration. She's given cloths. She's given gifts like any adolescent girl. Don't believe it. Don't I don't believe it for a second. They tried to make it a happy ending. It couldn't have been a happy ending. She must have been broken, completely broken when she got home and so on and so forth. She says she went to the synagogue on the Sabbath afterwards and there was great festivity. And I, I just have a lot of trouble believing that. 
So we really can't know too much about this this woman. But notice, of course, the cloth. They're, they're trying to picture her as a typical um, young woman getting ready to grow up, a woman of some means. So, so there's cloth, there are gifts, and so on and so forth. Okay, that part is probably true. Uh, but uh, the ghetto was full of very, very poor people. Uh, 80% of people couldn't pay taxes, and they were all getting some kind of assistance from the community. And the community was in tremendous, tremendous debt to the popes, of course, which is one of the reasons why the popes never really forced conversion on them. They couldn't afford to. They had to keep the community raising taxes to pay off debts, and they would issue them bonds to pay off previous bonds to pay off previous bonds and it was this vicious circle so uh, yeah life in the roman ghetto in the 18th century was not a happy place to put it mildly can you tell us some more about giuseppe sermonetta what can you tell us about his life and biography um what role does he play in the story you tell well, Giuseppe Sermonetta, as I mentioned, was a professor at the Hebrew University. He was a Roman Jew uh, who made Aliyah uh, probably in his 30s or something like that. I'm not sure. When I met him in the early 1970s, he was already in his in his 50s. Uh, he was, uh, I hope I don't step on toes here, he was physically very short, very round, uh, and not a beautiful person, but when he, I saw him once get up in front of a class of a hundred students, hundred undergraduate students in, in uh, uh, philosophy, he spoke for an hour and a half. You could hear a pin drop for the hour and a half. It was, it was just, you know, this, this, you, you say, who's this person? And suddenly this marvelous lecturer and speaker and, and, and as, as, as marvelous as he was in, in, in his, uh, you know, lecture, he was as a person, as a, as a human being. Uh, I came, I was, I had just gotten a doctorate. I, I was unknown in, in Israel to have a doctorate at age 27. People were just finishing their, their undergraduate degrees, people after the army. And he welcomed me. He said, well, come to, but come my home. People entertain people in their homes in those days. He said, come to my home. And I went at seven o'clock one evening and left at midnight. Uh, it was such a wonderful conversation. And we became uh, close friends. I well, I don't know that I'm exaggerating in terms of uh, of how you know. But we we were good. We were we were close. I would say, and and uh, and I, and I loved him very much. He died uh, in his seventies, early seventies, I think. I wish he had lived another ten or fifteen years. Uh, he was uh, the cornerstone of the Italian synagogue in. Jerusalem. Now, if any of you get to Jerusalem, you must go to see the Italian synagogue in Jerusalem. Uh, if you go on a Shabbat morning, you will hear melodies. If you're an Ashkenazi Jew, um, you, you'll hear melodies you don't know, uh, but you'll follow them. They're, they're, they're followable because Italian Jews, many people think Italian Jews must be Sephardi Jews. They're not. They're Italian Jews. They're not Sephardim. They're not Ashkenazim. They're Italkim. And they had their own melodies and their own prayer ritual. Obviously, it's very close. And the Ashkenazi prayer ritual is actually a derivative of the Roman ritual. The Roman ritual is slightly overlaid with Sephardi material from the 16th century. 
but uh, but the the we we know there's a tradition, a tradition in Northern Europe that said uh, the, the great Rabbi Tom of the uh, 12th century said uh, from Bari, Southern Italy, will go forth the Torah, and uh, and from Otranto, a city right nearby, will come the word of the Lord, playing on Kimitzion, if you know that. Uh, the, the, there's a statement that in the 11th century, Colonimus of Luca, Luca's near Florence on the coast, uh, Colonimus of Luca went to Mainz, and I always would ask students, well, I'll tell you Lufthansa, uh, but you could trace going over all the commercial routes, how, how culture spread. So Roman Jews are Roman Jews. Uh, and Sermonetta was an arch representative, not only in his name, which it's, it's from a small town south of Rome. Many Jews had names like the Seni, the Verily, the Tivoli. These are all towns south of Rome, Sermonetta. Uh, uh, he, he certainly was the arch Roman Jew. The, the the pillar of this synagogue, which which is built by the architect David Casuto, uh, it looks just like an uh, an early modern Italian synagogue. Actually, a modern one. They're all Orthodox. There's a women's gallery above. It's all very small. How he managed to get it in, I don't know. And the ark is from Conigliano, which is in the Veneto in the north. Uh, and it's from the uh, 18th century, I believe, or late 17th century. It's an amazing piece of work. And if you go there on a Shabbat morning, uh, I strongly advise it. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's a unique experience. Uh, so Sermonetta was a pillar there. And uh, as I say, he was, and he was the one who found the diary. I always suspected it was in, being held in his family. They don't want to say and he published it, and who better than him to publish it, which also saved me a problem because I didn't have to worry whether the the addition of the dowry that existed was correct because he was a magnificent scholar and he was recognized in Italy as uh, spreading Italian culture. Uh, I, I don't remember what honor they gave him from the Italian embassy, uh, but he was well-known person. Who was Sabato Cohen? What role does he play? in this story. Right, right. Sabato Cohen is the name of uh, Ana del Monte's so-called uh, uh, so, so fiancé. He's not as her fiancé at all. What you, what you had is Ana del Monte is very well to do. Sabato Cohen is probably uh, a very poor Jew who decided that he would talk to her once, maybe found a way to talk to her, uh, whether in the street or speaking, calling up to a window, you know, the Romeo and Juliet scene. It's not that uh, that unusual. Uh, and he decided, he decided he'd be better off as a Christian for whatever reason, doubtful reason of belief. Uh, and uh, he claimed that he had, uh, he was engaged to her and therefore he had a right to offer her. Obviously, if he had worked and she had converted and he would have married her, he himself would have been well off. But what's interesting is he had a sister. I don't remember exact, her exact name. She converted before him. Usually it's the other way around, that a man converts and then drags the family along with him. So what prompted her, uh, I don't know. 
in the diary, she tells Anna she is a wonderful husband that the church gave her and a wonderful mother-in-law. You want to believe it, believe it. You don't want to believe it, don't believe it. And I'm sure most people who read the diary didn't believe it because the converts had an awful lot of problems. They were inconsistent. There is even the case of one convert who went, uh, who, who we know who would go home every Shabbat because he liked to eat cholent. So um, that who that is who Sabbath Hokohan mm. is. Who is Carlo Lutti? Can you tell right. us about him? Yes, and I said earlier when I was talking about uh, emancipation problems like that that Carlo Lutti was one of the people who were defending Jews. Jews were defended by lawyers, Christian lawyers. Why Christian lawyers? Because Jews had to go either to papal courts or to, to, to regular courts, uh, as everyone in Rome did, uh, and uh, they would hire lawyers. They would hire Christian lawyers. There's a long list of them. Uh, I can run it off, but it doesn't matter. And the names wouldn't follow. But Carlo Nuti was unique. He defended the Jews on more than one occasion. Uh, and I suspect he became quite a familiar and quite a trusted figure in the Jewish community. Now, he is involved not in Ana del Monte's case. Uh, he's involved later in, no, no, he's about the same time, a few years later, uh, in, in, in a case uh, where he's trying to argue that the church has no right to take the child. What do, what do I mean? The question is, what are the rules for baptism? This is very important here. Uh, can I uh, walk down the street and say, hey, I see that fellow there. I want to offer him to the church to be baptized. Uh, the answer is uh, you can offer all you want, but uh, if you're you know, no relation to him, the person can look at you like, you know, like uh, you drank some local weed in the morning and nothing will happen. On the other hand, it's generally assumed by law uh, that parents have certain rights over children. So who is a parent, right? Who, who, which, which parent uh, can um, uh, can can devote a child or dedicate a child to the church? And the the answer is, oh well, it should be a, a, a living parent. It should be both parents. Well, not really, because we can start making exceptions. Remember, I mentioned something called favor fidei, favor of the faith. Well, if it's favor fide, if it can be interpreted that way, uh, as opposed to odium fide, hatred of the faith, which means doesn't mean hatred, it means something that works against the church, period. Uh, and that can be a whole lot of things, including uh, ritual murder libel, but it can just be keeping somebody from converting. Uh, and, and if you have favor fide, well, you know, maybe, maybe if one of the parents converted, that person has the right. The, the parental right, the right of the father, patria potestas, the pow power of the father, literally, can be transferred to the mother. And while we're at it, maybe it can be transferred to the uh, the father's mother. Uh, and uh, the parents have to be dead. Well, maybe if the parents are still alive, we can still do it and transfer it. And, 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 and this may sound silly, but this is what lawyers were writing. And, and they got to the point where uh, some second cousin could have the right of offering. Now, things were pretty bad. And things are especially bad because in the ghetto, everybody's in, everybody's uh, related. If you go to a group of Roman Jews together, you don't ask, are they related? 
You ask, how many generations do you have to go back to find a common relative? It'll happen somewhere or other. You had three, 4,000 people living for 300 years, more or less, enclosed. Uh, obviously, everybody's going to wind up intermarried with everyone else or close to it. Uh, and, uh, and so Carlo Lutti was called in to defend. And he makes an wonderful arguments. And at one point, he actually writes an argument that's amazing he could get away with it. Uh, the, one of the popes, Benedict XIV, said, well, the need of the faith is a, a special weight, the sopra carico, uh, a person in charge of, 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 of matters. Uh, that, that's what works. And Carlo Lutti turned around and said, this is a matter of papal arrogance. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. I would love to do a biography of Luti. I would actually love to do a biography of, of, of many of the lawyers who defended the Jews. Uh, I would like to find out if there's a relationship between what they did with Jews and what they did in general. Unfortunately, I have run into dead ends when I started to look these things up. I have, I have you know, what they wrote about Jews, but beyond that, I haven't really been able to find material. Uh, so I may, may, I will be in Italy in May for a few weeks. I may take another stab at it, uh, but I have much to do in the archives as it is. So, uh, so we 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 shall we shall see. But Luti is the probably the arch example of this. But interestingly, another person who defended the Jews was a man named uh, De Luca, and De Luca was ultimately a cardinal. Uh, but hmm. he had no problem defending the Jews. In other words, we, there, there was there was an absolute incredible uh, conflict here, uh, a potential conflict. On the one hand, Jews are citizens. De Luca makes it very clear. Jews are citizens according to civil law. They have all the civil rights of everyone else. They can they can drag a Christian into court and have a fair trial, which did occur. On the other hand, when religion gets involved, religion it's always the favor of religion. And that's where that's where things work. Can you tell us about Giuseppe Sessa? Why is he interesting? Uh, Giuseppe Sessa is another one of these characters. He's also a lawyer, but he was a judge. He's not from Rome. He's from Torino, Turin, in the in the north of Italy, which is a, a very different city from Rome, by the way. Uh, and uh, it, it's a very heavy French influence, actually. Uh, but but uh, very, very intellectual kind of city. Uh, but Giuseppe Sessa was the judge of the Jews in Turin, uh, and he wrote a 300-page book of law concerning Jews. Now, this was not the first such collection. The first one was made in the 16th century by a man named Marquardo Susani. Uh, and that book uh, was, uh, I, if my book sold the way his book did, I'd be very happy. It went through five editions in 60 years. Uh, and there's some interesting things in there, including, by the way, I will mention something about abortion, which everybody should know. Uh, the book, this, the Anna Tranquilla talks a little bit about it, but I found the text in, in, in De Susanis, which he added a few years afterward. De Susanis was very, very close with the Pope. De Susanis was a fervent Catholic. De Susanis wrote laws about Jews in which he tried to say, if we use the law right and press the Jews right, they'll convert. We are not talking about a free thinker or an Enlightenment character. This is 1558. What does he say? He's talking about when conception occurs. 
And he says, well, uh, he said, when, you know, he says, well, conception, when it occurs, when does the soul enter the body? And he said, well, the, the soul can enter immediately. It happened only once. That was with Jesus. Jesus was unique. With humans, it happens later, at 40 days or 80 days, but it's, it's later. Okay, so, and this happens to be the medieval opinion, the general medieval opinion, actually. He then, not, what's, well, not what you hear today, not what you hear today at all. He then goes on and says, abortion is terrible. It's murder. But wait a minute. Until, what is abortion? It's when you kill the soul. But if there's no soul for the first 40 or 80 days, there's no murder, no abortion. Very interesting thing. I'm not, this is not my interpretation, folks. This is what the text says in just so many words from 1568. This was the second edition of the book. Well, let's get back to Sesa. Now that I threw in my uh, business about abortion there and about, about what De Susanis was saying, the attitudes, I go into this in the book, I bring material changed in the 18th century. Well, Sesa wrote another book. Why? Because he wanted to elaborate really on what we all knew. And he spends a great deal of time talking about who can or cannot be offered to the church. And he comes up and he says, you know, you, you really can carry it all these ways that I mentioned before, but it's wrong. It's not the right thing to do. It's very interesting. Sesa respects Jews. He respects the Jewish family. I mean, it, it's kind of crazy how things go. Uh, he he talks about Jews can divorce because Jewish marriage is really a civil civil uh, act and contract, which it is. The Jewish marriage ceremony it's a civil contract. It's not a not a religious thing. The seven blessings said after the uh, after the ceremony after at the end of the marriage ceremony they're, they're in addition. The, the the marriage is the the Jewish uh, marriage contract the ketubah. Uh, and a statement by the groom, technically, only by the groom, technically, that uh, the wife is sanctified, actually made distinct, special uh, for him. And today, of course, people do it mutually. But but that's that. And he says, so therefore, the implication is Jews can divorce with the implication we all be better off with civil marriage. So these people are, you know, but they've, they've got their, he's writing in 1716, he's got his foot going ahead and his foot going back at the same time. What role did Pope Benedict XIV play in the events described in your book? Uh, Pope Benedict XIV is the uh, the anti-hero of the book. He's the, uh, I can't think of the name of the, 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 the terrible nemesis of Superman and Batman and all that. But Benedict XIV kind of plays that role, but not quite. Because Benedict XIV is the Pope in uh, about the time of Ana del Monte, I don't remember exactly, I should have checked his exact years, uh, through the 15, late 1540s into the 1550s. Uh, and he is very involved in the question of who can dedicate a child or, or, or a spouse to be offered to the church uh, and what are the rules and not rules. And this is something else which is rather amazing, that if everything were arbitrary, if I said, I'm going to get rid of all Jews and I remove remove all their uh, legal rights and legal privileges 
and uh, and degrade them totally, which is what the Nazis did, uh, then you have no problem. You can kill anybody you want. You can forcibly convert anybody you want. But the church has long traditions, and those traditions say that the Jews have a right to live under Christendom. So how in the world, you know, how how do you uh, deal with trying to get Jews to convert? You try to find all these uh, insights. And what Benedict XIV did in, in, in a couple of major papal letters, they, that's the proper term, the bull is just the the seal that's attached to the papal letter, that Benedict XIV, what, what he did in his um, in, in a long letter was try to set out the limits, what was permissible and what wasn't permissible. And and again, the, the you know the, the amazing thing that strikes us, he could have arbitrarily done whatever he wanted, but he couldn't do arbitrarily what he wanted. And that has always been the, the, the issue with the church. The church has to live with the Jews. It's necessary to live with the Jews, but it's afraid of the Jews. It's afraid of contamination through Jews and Jewish dealings. And um, it has its own limits. It will not go too far. It will speak out in times when Jews are uh, in danger. At the same time, it's constantly putting pressures, especially in the early modern period, especially in the 18th century. Not so much earlier, not in the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, conversion was encouraged, but nobody was writing policies to, to force convert, push conversion. In the 18th century, they were. And so they have to find this balance. They have to find this limit. And, and this is what they do. And by the way, when I mentioned about protection, why is the real problem with Pope Pius XII? Well, he said, well, I defended Jews, I hid Jews, et cetera, et cetera. They won during the Second World War because he didn't speak out. And there's a Jewish tradition. Uh, it's a chronicle tradition. I won't go into that. It'll be another hour here. But a, a chronicle tradition in which the Pope always speaks out. When Jews are in trouble, the Pope says, no, you can't attack Jews. You can't kill Jews. They're a part of our Christian uh, society, and they have a right to live as long as they wish to be Jews, even though we have to protect ourselves from them, protect in uh, quotation marks. Pius XII did not do that, and that was his great failure. Can you compare and contrast the story you present in this book with the case of Edgardo Mortara? Mortara, yeah. Uh, the difference of Edgardo Mortara is, is, is rather clear. Edgardo Mortara uh, was a child in Bologna in 1858. Uh, Bologna was part of the papal state. What do I mean papal state? People today think, well, the papal state is the city, Città uh, del Stato del Vaticano, the, the city of the uh, Vatican, Vatican City. It's a, you know, an independent state. You, you, you go into the, you cross the borders of the, 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 the St. Anna Gate to go to the library. You're out of Italy. But uh, in the uh, through the through the year 1870, the papal state was the whole middle third of Italy. The Pope ruled it directly, uh, and um, part of that was Bologna. So Mortara was a papal you know, subject, but Mortara's nursemaid claimed she had baptized him. In other words, he's different. Anna del Monte Sabato Cohen said she wants to convert until she actually converted. Uh, they can't say she's a Christian, has to stay a Christian. Once Edgardo was baptized, 
he had to stay a Christian. And that was what the, the fight was all about. Now, 1860 is not 1760. 1760, you don't have the French Revolution, you have the American Revolution. It's the old world, and uh, the popes can you know, put more pressure and do what they want and be free. In, in, in 1860, they couldn't. The papal state was very weak. It, it, it was kept in existence only because there were French troops in Rome. Remember, there had been a revolution in 1848, and the Pope had almost been uh, you know, captured and taken, whatever, in 1848. I don't remember if he actually was for a short time. Uh, uh, so there, there, there were a lot of things that were different. The Popes were a lot weak, but he stood his ground with Edgardo Mortari. He wouldn't give up. This was Pius IX, and... Um, Finally, the French emperor, Louis Napoleon, got, got sick of him in 1860, and he said enough, and he pulled out the troops, and that ended the papal state. The pope wouldn't give in, and he kept Edgardo with him. Edgardo eventually, I think he died when he was 97 as a monk in Belgium or something like that. But the story the story is, is, is very different because of the, the whole structure that was going on at that time. The whole the whole difference in the world, in 18, the world of 1860 was so far removed from the world of 1760. How does your book contribute to our understanding of the history of Jewish emancipation? Well, the the I, I think I was really touching on that before to say that Jewish emancipation. Well, let me let me put it this way. There have been quite a number of studies showing Jews gaining more and more and more rights, trying to explain it. One of the theories is Jews who were in ports and merchants, uh, open, they, there was an opening, an opening up David Sorkin, uh, and, and Jews getting in the Western Europe, getting more and more privileges, Jews involved in the Atlantic trade, and so on and so forth. That's all very nice. But until, but as long as there is a legal structure, based on something called jus commune, which is a Christian law. As long as the laws of the state are Christian laws, you can only go so far. Most, most prominent is that according to Roman law, jus commune, Jews may not exercise authority. They may not be judges. They may not hold public office. They certainly may not exercise sovereignty. In other words, the existence of the state of Israel, Jews uh, exercising sovereignty, is actually a real problem for the church. And it, it was very difficult. They recognized the state of Israel, not the Jewish state. I knew the cultural attache, attache of Israel and Rome when they were making the treaty. The church had a lot of problems with, 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 with recognizing Jewish sovereignty. And this is from Roman law. So the whole point of the book is that until until such time as, as uh, the law codes were changed, until Napoleon's Code Civil or the American Revolution, there was no way, no way for Jews to be fully integrated and fully sovereign. They could be, they could be rich, they could, they could be, be, do this, that, they could be the other thing, but they always somehow or other uh, not full members. In England, it was very practical. It was until 1858 that Lord Rothschild finally was able to take a place in, uh, in, uh, in Parliament. And that was in a state where, where, though there was an official church, the head of the church was the king. 
and he could do whatever he wanted. That was the, the real revolution of Henry VIII was declaring himself the head of the church, not the Pope, uh, so that there were full Episcopal powers. So that uh, the whole point of the book is, look what happens in a state which has, which is a confessional state. Jews could never in a million years. You have this, this, this amazing uh, uh, ambivalence, uh, antinomy of the Jews, full citizens civilly, yet totally restricted religiously. And it's like, you know, the two are moving towards each other and clashing. Where is it, which is going to give way first? It's like on a balance. And so what did give way was the religious law. And then in 1870, when you get the secular Italian kingdom, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, Catholic is the formal religion, but still it's secular. And in Rome in particular, the Pope hated them. They hated the Pope, the, the authorities in Rome. Jews become full citizens. Until that moment, you can't. And that's what this book is about. It's about the protest of Tranquilo del Monte in the name of his sister. Look at this crazy situation because we live in a state that's a confessional state in which we're, we're citizens, we can go to court, we can do this, we can do that, but bingo, when religion comes in, we're not. And that's what's no good. And then, of course, in Italy, it ended in 1938 abruptly uh, with, uh, with the Mussolini's racial laws. But even before that, 1929, when the uh, Mussolini and the Pope made a concordat. Can you tell us about the incarceration of pregnant Jewish women? What specifically yes. happened? What befell them? All right. This is this is a, a quite quite a story because uh, in many occasions uh, somebody dedicated uh, the the child of a Jewish woman, a child that was still a fetus. Uh, how can you do that? Well, they did it, uh, and the. They, these women were then taken uh, and held in the house of converts until the baby was born and the baby would be snatched away instantly and baptized. Not exactly the kind of thing that one would want to hear about today, of course. Uh, and uh, what's the background to all this? Well, the background goes back to a story which may be as old as the fifth century of a Jewish father who hears that his son wants to take the Eucharist or took the Eucharist. Uh, and the father is so angry that he throws the child into a furnace. Uh, and uh, the child is not burned because he's saved by the Virgin. And this is the arch story of what Jews would do to a child to, 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 to keep children from being baptized. The story gets strengthened because in the first crusade of 1096, where there was enormous forced conversion, there indeed was a question of Jews slaughtering their own children, fathers and mothers. We don't really know quite how many, but it was a lot. It was a lot. Uh, and uh, this, again, this, this sort of reified this myth that was gone had gone on for a number of centuries. And the myth is, you can find it in, in poetry and in, in, in 13th century Spain in the middle of nowhere in Rioja in Spain, uh, in monasteries. So there is this, this sincere belief that Jews kill their, uh, their children so that if a child has been dedicated, been offered, uh, the fetus has been offered, they know the mother is going to abort or kill the child, supposedly, supposedly. And therefore, 
they hold the mother in the house of converts in order to uh, to uh, you know, ensure that the child be baptized, all very draconian. And one wonders in the history of abortion, we know that attitudes changed in the 17th and the 18th century, that if the, this question of Jewish women wasn't actually a part of it, let's say that the soul entered immediately as conception, and therefore we can grab the woman and hold her in the House of, uh, in the house of Congress. It's part of it, I can't be quite sure, but attitudes absolutely did change. There's a book called Sacred Embryology by a Francisco, Emmanuel Francesco Canjamila, which simply, it got all over the place. And they were doing things like, uh, a woman was dying in childbirth, uh, doing a uh, cesarean effectively on her, killing her, in other words, so that they could baptize the child for was still alive. And again, this is an interpretation. This has been studied. Uh, so that uh, all of this was very much uh, held together and certainly a very frightening thing and a very unpleasant aspect of all that was going on. Can you tell us about some of your personal experiences in preparing this book? Um in what ways did you evolve during your process of preparing and researching this topic? Um, that's, that's, you know, this is a book that I had wanted to do from the first moment that I read the diary, which was 30 years ago. And I always dreamed of having the repose to do it. And finally, uh, I, I did uh, and the diary, it just the more I read it, the more it came alive to me, to following its structure, wondering about its structure, wondering uh, who this Anna Del Monte could have been or how Tranquilo could have could have pictured her. Uh, and then once I, I had read it and once I had seen other things that people were writing about baptism in Rome at the time, it all kind of clicked in. And then my, 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 all my interests in, in law over the years and knowing the law, knowing tracing the canon law and the Roman law, and uh, being both a medievalist and an early modernist, so this this kind of culminated. And I, I reread the book uh, for today's discussion, uh, which which normally sometimes can be very disappointing, uh, but in this case I was very pleased because I saw how much the book really hangs together, presenting the ideas which I hope I was able to elucidate uh, today. Uh, and uh, it, it was this very, very satisfying experience of perhaps doing, saying something new. People have tried to explain emancipation, what caused it, what brought it about, what were the forces. And I think that I put my finger on, by all this intense study, that I put my finger on the thing which is the sine qua non. Until law changes, until the state becomes lay, until not just lay, but the state becomes secular, the state becomes neutral. So that indeed, in the words of George Washington, the one who obeys the law is a good citizen. And in a modern society where, uh, where certainly in, in the United States, and I would say certainly in Toronto, which is such a polyglot, multi-ethnic, racial, whatever you want city, a uh, city I happen to love very much, um, the uh, from time I spent there at the University of Toronto, uh, that, that this is the absolute necessity for a state to, to function, that, that law and law authorities and the courts must not put their fingers on this. They, they must not uh, what privilege one religious group over another religious group. Uh, they, they, they must be very careful of, of intervening in any way 
to 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 support uh, doctrines which are theological doctrines. They, they, can a baker bake a cake uh, if he if if he doesn't want these people or whatever? Well, I'm not so sure that the baker has has a right uh, to to re, to refuse. I mean, yes, it's 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 his religious thing, but the state can't decide on the basis of that person's uh, religious religious feelings. Other than that. Uh, we 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 create a society which is, is not the society that's necessary when when we're living in in such complex complex worlds. We have to we have to stay uh, free and open, and uh, it certainly applies to uh, Israel and things as an Israeli that I see that I'm not happy with. Uh, I wish there were civil marriage in Israel. It would resolve a lot of problems. So all these things, all these senses came very much sharpened to me from writing this book. And uh, I was very happy that I wrote it. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about where your time has gone since completing this book? Uh Well, it's been traveling a lot uh, because I just do. But uh, between uh, Argentina, the United States, Israel, Italy, uh, but it's gone into a writing, uh, writing a book, revising uh, a book, which I did a medieval book about a medieval chronicle, uh, which is all fancy, uh, which has to do with the Jews turning to the Pope and the Pope saying, I will protect you in a moment of attack. Uh, it's supposedly from the 11th century, but it's really from the 13th. And I managed to prove that to my satisfaction anyway. Uh, that that's another book uh, which is called Levy's Vindication because as often happens in history um, um, a scholar named um, Israel Levy uh, came to the same conclusion in 1906 and nobody believed him uh, and uh, I vindicated him so to speak but also in the process how do we read a medieval chronicle you just can't take it at face value so that was that I did that and now in recent years I wrote this book uh, which, as I said, I'm still haven't don't have the publisher for on the provision of kosher meat in Rome, which, as I said, has really the the meat is very interesting. The part of it we discuss it, we discuss how it's cut, and so we I uh, and uh, but it also has to do with the butchers. It has to do with the relationships of Jews with uh, Christian butchers. They couldn't work without each other because part of the animal is, is intrinsically not kosher. Uh, even a cow and has to be sold to Christians uh, unless certain acts are performed. And the fact that canonically it's illegal and the church somehow or other had to make peace with it, which it did most of the time. And that's where I am. The next project I would like to do is surprise Jews in case law, the questions of people like Carlo Lutti and so on and so forth. But that was baptism. I want to do a thing. A Jew hits a Christian, a Christian hits a Jew, it goes to court. How is it resolved? That's, uh, you know, how much are Jews really citizens and equal citizens? So it all all works together. And I've had a good time doing it. And I highly recommend the academic profession. Uh, I wish that the academic profession, certainly humanities, had not changed and become so difficult as has over the course of my career. Thank you for your time. It was my blessing to be in communication with you today. Thank you for everything you shared and your very generous responses during the course of our conversation. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And I thank you very much for asking me. And I'm very, so happy we're able to put this thing together so quickly. Thank you. I'm tremendously grateful and tremendously fortunate. Thank you again.
As we bring our dialogue today to a close, I'm your host on the New Books and Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Dr. Kenneth Stowe. We've been discussing his new book, Anna and Tranquilo, Catholic Anxiety and Jewish Protest in the Age of Revolutions, published in New Haven by Yale University Press, 2016. Kenneth is Professor Emeritus of Jewish History at the University of Haifa. Thank you.